So this morning we will continue in Matthew chapter 5 and we'll be discussing the third antithetical statement made by our Lord. And last week's study actually segues somewhat into this morning's study because last week we talked about adultery and as we'll see this morning, it really is the only escape clause reason for a marriage being dissolved, divorce as we call it. But let me open up with two statements. First of all, no joke, and my wife is here, I prayed for a month before I knew this portion of the scripture of the Sermon on the Mount was coming. I prayed and really sought the Holy Spirit because in no way do I want it to be my opinion. I truly want it to be what God has for his church because it's such a sensitive topic, okay? And the best commentary on God's word is God's word. That's why there's going to be quite a bit of scripture this morning because let it be from God's word, not from a man's lips, amen? And the second thing is, please, we're all in our current situations in our Christian walk because they are sensitive subjects, all right? Divorce and remarriage, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, and they are. They're saying the unmarried have a better understanding of what the marriage covenant is, and that's exactly what it is. It's not a, a, you know, just a, a commitment. It's a covenant in the eyes of God. And the second, for us now, like Chris and Gina, you're sitting there, your kids are getting to that age. Some of us, Alana's getting to that age, where if they're going to get into a relationship as parents, we have a way to counsel them on, on really what God means in the marriage covenant, that it's a sanctified covenant by God, not to be taken lightly, okay? So with that said, let me read from Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32, and it says this. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you, that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And what we have to do is look at this and couple it with uh, a scripture from Matthew 19. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew 19, and we're going to look at verse. As you study through the commentaries, they always parallel these scriptures. All righty? It says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. What they were trying to do as we move forward in the sermon is to see if he's going to agree with the traditions of the elders. All right? So he would find, you know, so if he didn't, he wouldn't find favor in the eyes of the people. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And you'll understand that verse as we move on in the sermon. And then the Lord replies, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made the male and female and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united, cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So there are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. It's that sin nature. But it was not this way from the beginning. That's not the way God wanted it. It was supposed to be that union, husband and wife. But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So we see the parallels in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. And church, let's begin with the basics. Let's look at marriage from God's perspective. And this will be an overview because if we were to do a whole comprehensive study on marriage and the marital relationship and children, we'd be here for a month of Sundays. And if you think the book of Romans was long, 
this subject would take twice as long. Amen? So let's begin. Let's look at what some of the W questions are when it comes to marriage. And we have to start where? But in the book of beginnings, where it all began. So please go to Genesis 1, and we're going to look at verses 18 to 24. Genesis 1, 18 to 24. And I love this opening verse at 18, when it says, The Lord said, It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. God doesn't want us to be alone. He wants to have the marriage covenant. He instituted it. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. But for poor Adam, no suitable helper was found. Now, if you've been in this church prior to me being the preacher, my pastor was, had great wisdom, and he said, smart is God. He made all the animals come to Adam, and he's naming whatever, goat, cat, deep, dude. But all of a sudden, he looked, and there's nobody that walked on two legs and looked like him. He gave him a holy curiosity. How come there's no helpmate for me? How come there's not one male and female for me? So, at that point, the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed him up in that place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man and brought it to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. To bring it modern, he probably said, wow, whoa. Right? Adam looked and saw her and was like, we owe, one for me. And that is why a man leaves his father and a mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh, okay? So we see it was God gives him a holy curiosity, creates this beautiful brunette, and uh, brings him to the man, and he says, wow, this is now flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. She is woman, and the Lord brings them together in union. This is where the marriage begins. And then go back to Genesis 1, verse 27 and 28 for a second, or a forward, excuse me. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful, increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. So we see the plan. In this marriage union, God is creating something for the man and the woman to do. First of all, according to the scripture, where did God institute the marital relationship well in the very beginning right there between the man adam and the woman eve he institutes the marriage covenant okay and um and where was it again it was established in the garden and uh why reasons so they could be fruitful and multiply and to co-labor with god to subdue the earth and rule over it Male and female, men and women, we are humankind. We're supposed to be co-laborers with God, working over the environment, this earthly environment that he put us in. Unfortunately, the world's been tainted by sin, and the original things that we see, or the things we see happening out there today weren't in the original plan. Amen? And listen, in this relationship, Adam is given the federal head because he was created first, and Eve comes under him as his helpmate, and they work together to fulfill God's will and God's plan for the earth, to fill it, subdue it, and bring it under the Lord's control. Amen? But we have to understand something. Adam and Eve are of equal value in God's eyes. Because the man's put in the position as a federal head doesn't mean he is 
better than a position of hierarchy within the family. And why? Listen to 1 Corinthians 11.3. It says, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Even in the Godhead, there is a hierarchy where Jesus came under his Father's authority to fulfill the plan of salvation. And so the marriage covenant mirrors that, that the husband's the federal head and the, man, uh, the woman comes under his authority, right? Working together to fulfill God's plan for humankind. Now, if we look at Philippians 2, God and, and Jesus are in the nature, the same essence, okay? But they work together as Jesus comes under the Father's authority to fulfill the plan. So the man and woman, we're equal, but we come together Husband is the federal head, woman under his authority to fulfill the plan that God has for us, amen? So we have to understand that to begin with. And to accomplish this task, we're to be fruitful and multiply. We're to create other little helpmates that when they mature, they'll go out and help to, what, rule over God's environment, yes? All right, so now that we have this general overview, let's look at the marital relationship itself. And the term we must introduce is the term covenant. It is a covenant ordained by God. It's just not a commitment made between two people. Commitments can be broken. Covenants were not meant to be broken. The matter relationship is more than a commitment between a man and a woman. Covenant, listen to me, a relationship where two are joined together as one flesh, ordained to be inseparable and permanent. That's how God created it, all right? And in the word, uh, the word in Genesis used, in the original language, the two become one flesh is the Hebrew word echad. And what it means is a union. The two become one flesh. It's the same term used in the original language of the original Shema of, uh, by the Hebrews. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Just as in the Trinity, there is one God with three distinct personalities, but one God because they are so in union together, so it is to be between the husband and wife, that when God brings us together, we're as one flesh, distinct personalities, but one relationship. Do we understand? Amen? And if we were to use the King James Version, it says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. And that word cleave means to a gluing together, an inseparable and permanent bond. And that's what God created husband and wife for us, to have that inseparable bond. And we also get a picture of this covenant relationship in Ephesians chapter 5, and it reads this in verse 31 and 32. For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united, cleave to his wife. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. So that same covenant, that new covenant you see between Christ and the church is the same type of covenant that is supposed to be between a husband and wife. Now let me ask you, is the Lord going to break his covenant with us? Absolutely not. All right? Okay? So do we, are we going to break that covenant in marriage? No, we should not. The covenant re relationship in marriage would be in this, seen in the same light as the relationship between Christ and his church. All righty? All right, so let me ask you. Family, all right, I'm sorry. Marriage is to be seen and practiced in light of a covenant relationship. And let me give you four elements that if we're looking to get involved, all right, how it's, this covenant is to be established and confirmed. And this is really a good teaching tool parents, parents, grandparents, to bring to your children. First of all, is the undertaking of committed faithfulness made by both the man and the woman, that they are willingly coming
to make this commitment to be involved, all right? They're not being, you know, this parent picks this kid, this parent picks this kid, they never meet each other, and they come together. No, the two uh, couple has to be willing. Second, it's the acceptance of that undertaking by both the man and the woman. They got to accept that they are entering into a covenant. They're supposed to be witnesses to what happens. God was the witness in the garden, but he calls us together to have witnesses. That's why we do it in the church and in front of others, to have witnesses. And then fourth is that there will be growth within the relationship based on the covenant expressed in the fidelity and agape love that they have one for another. They're pledging fidelity to one another. They're pledging to have that agape, that sacrificial love one for another so they can fulfill as one flesh the plan that God has for them as one couple. Amen? Family, very simply, the marriage covenant is ordained by God. It's between a man and a woman. It was to be, is to be inseparable and permanent in the original language before the fall. Before the fall. And that's where the problem comes in. And understand, because when the fall came, not only is creation subject to frustration, but it also happened to affect the marriage covenant. The marriage was also affected by the tainting of sin. Listen to Genesis 3, 16b. It says this concerning the marital relationship. This is the Lord speaking to Eve, okay, about the judgment. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. So right here we see the birth of chauvinism and feminism because now the husband is going to want to lord it over his wife from that federal head position, and the wife is going to want to rebel and take the position of her husband. So we sin takes place in the world. Now, with that said, let's go back to our portion in Matthew where the Son of God will begin to dis discussion about divorce and remarriage that really have their roots where? In man's fallen nature. When sin entered the world, so did disharmony within the marital relationship, which leads to what? Self-centered behaviors, other things, and divorce. Yes? All right. So, church, let me explain. There is an escape clause in Matthew uh, 5 and in Matthew 19. The same clause is not found in Mark and in Luke, okay? And there's a reason. Mark and Luke wrote predominantly to a largely Gentile population, and in the Roman Empire, they did allow for divorce. And even women had some rights within the divorce, okay? Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience, and there was a ton of ambiguity when it came to the idea of divorce. So here he's going to clarify it for them because they were following the traditions of the elders, which again may not have paralleled, did not parallel the word of God. And the ambiguity is based on a scripture in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. I'm going to ask you to turn to that because it really is going to give us clarity on the subject. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. And it says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, and if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man. So I'm going to jump ahead of myself a little bit, but we see here, if she becomes the wife of another man, doesn't talk, it says that you can remarry, okay? It doesn't talk against remarriage, all right? And her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends it from his house, or if he does, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after he has been defiled. That would be detestable to the Lord 
Do not bring sin upon the Lord, uh, the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And let's camp here a little bit because there's some confusion that comes from the context of what we just read. And so again, Jesus will open up uh, the portion of scripture we're talking about. It has been said, but now I tell you. What he is doing is saying, look, the scribes and Pharisees have been telling you this, but the Son of God is saying, let me tell you from the Lord's perspective, okay? So he's going to refute some of these things. And it, um, there were actually two schools of thought on divorce that came up in Jewish tradition. So let's look at those for a second, all right? And in the statement, we're going to see Jesus is neutering the argument for divorce based on a very liberal interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 rabbis, and they're really at polar opposites on their teaching. And of course, what are men going to do? They're going to take the liberal view so they can kind of do what they want to do. The school of Hillel camped on the phrase in the beginning of verse 1 of Deuteronomy 24, where it says that he could divorce his wife if she was displeasing to him. Boy, is that leaves something ambiguous, amen? If that was something displeasing, but the school of Shammai camped on the phrase in the middle of the verse that said she could only be divorced if on something that was indecent, alrighty? Which pointed to some degree of marital unfaithfulness, but likely fell short of adultery or homosexuality or lesbianism because in the Old Testament, under Jewish law, you could be stoned for those things. So it was probably some kind of marital unfaithfulness falling short of an adulterous relationship. All right? And at, at the time, what they were following was th what was written in the Mishnah. Now, I started studying the Mishnah. It's seven tractates that kind of outline uh, the rules for Jewish society. And Hillel took a, a very uh, liberal approach to the grounds of divorce. Now, the Mishnah, let me tell you what it is. It was actually a compilation of oral tradition that goes as far back to 50, 450 B.C. under Ezra and then it was really codified in the third century A.D. But this is what Jewish tradition was based on, Jewish law was almost based on, is these teachings in the Mishnah. Instead of going right to the Word of God, they would go to this for their teaching. And it's important in our discussion because of the numerous and ludicrous reasons that were given for divorce. So they followed the school of Hillel that was very liberal. And they, what they did is listen to some of these reasons. I had to give you some of these because it's let me just, in uh, the first one, if she became a deaf mute, it's in the Mishnah Yibam, that if your wife became a deaf mute, you could divorce her. Now, I can understand the deaf, the mute, not so much. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> in the Ketubat, Tractate 5, if she had epilepsy, tetanus, warts, or leprosy, if she had certain physical defense that, defects that actually mirrored why men could not become priests, if she showed those kind of defects, he could divorce her. If she had physical features that were displeasing to her, the shape of her head, the size of her ears and nose, if she had an Audi belly button. Now let's get, we, you know, we laugh, but they didn't wear bikinis back then, so you didn't know if your wife had an innie or an Audi. It was the night of the consummation that you found out what the whole deal looked like. So if all of a sudden you wake up and she's got an Audi, you could say, that's it, you're out. If she had an overbite or underbite, and it gets better. If she didn't perform services in the home, like grinding the flour, washing the clothes, cooking, caring for the children. If she burned the meal, boy, that first two years of our marriage, you'd be told her not to eat. Or if she visited her parents when he told her not to follow. And if she didn't, you're out. I'm serious. I'm reading this. I'm going, are you kidding me? 
I mean, it's all these different things, but it was bizarre. But this is what I'm saying. This is how liberal, a liberal approach they were taking for divorce. So if some guy just, after a while, didn't like the shape of her head, you're out. Didn't, you know, ears started getting bigger or nose grew a little longer, you're out. You burnt my meal, you're out. All right? Pretty sad, right? And what they had to do is they gave her a, a ketubah, as I was reading. And what it was was like a one-time alimony payout. Yeah, how far is that going to go? And you know what? They actually, from what I'm reading, they still do it in Judaism today, where the husband, if they divorce, they have to give her a ketubah, but then she's smart, takes them to civil court, take for all he's got, right? That's the way it goes. All right, the point of all this, all the jolliness here, not so jolly, is to show how easily divorce could be pursued by these guys in uh, the time that Jesus was walking the earth very easily for men to divorce their wife. And please listen carefully. The portion of Scripture in Deuteronomy 24 is not to be a prescription for divorce, but it gives a sense of permission based on certain standards. In other words, this passage of Scripture does not advocate or make divorce mandatory. Just because your wife burnt your meal doesn't mean you have to divorce her but it, was, it could have been a grounds. It cannot be concluded that even sanc- it, this portion of Scripture even sanctions divorce, but it does recognize divorce that it did happen and gave the wife an open door to remarry. That's why in Matthew 19.6 it tells us, look, it wasn't the original plan of God. It tells us this, therefore God is joined together, let no one separate. And even in Malachi 2.16a it says, for the Lord God of Israel says, I hate divorce. And the reason being, God knows the detriment that it does to the, to the couple, to the individuals, to the children, to the family, to a society, and to a nation. Look at our nation today, okay? It's part of it, the breakdown of the family. All right, that is why in Matthew 19, when the Pharisees come, they try to test Jesus and set him up because they want him to support the traditions of the elders, and if he goes against them, it's going to upset most of the Jewish community that's already there, the guys that are already there. And so they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And look what the Lord does. He responds quite sharply and confirms God's original plan for marriage, but he does leave room for the escape clause, but it's based on sexual immorality, some impropriety within the marriage. And listen, the term for sexual immorality in the Greek is porneia, which means some kind of sex for divorce under that one clause. And listen, Jesus is not condoning divorce, but it's for this reason and this reason only, sexual morality, that they, they can actually seek a divorce. It is permissible, but again, listen carefully, it wasn't the original plan of God. But because sin entered the world, so did the bent towards immorality, okay? And you may think this is a concession by the Lord, but it's not. It's really to protect the woman. And I'm going to explain why. It was to protect the woman. Because, let me give you two reasons. To protect her socially and economically. Women in this time in Palestine did not have a lot of rights. So if they were divorced and pushed out of the house, they would suffer economically and they could suffer socially, okay? Because they would be marred that they'd been divorced, that they would almost wear like that red A on their chest, okay? Therefore, if the husband divorced her, her reputation was in question and the status in society was marred even further and she could become economically destitute. Therefore, she could go and remarry, one for companionship, but also to make herself a little more economically sound and cared for. 
All right, so that's one reason. But let me give you the greater reason why Jesus is rebuking this and and their frivolous way of going for divorce. At this point, listen to me. He's rebuking that. All right, and I kind of lost my place. Give me a second. Okay. If you look at that, if it's frivolous, if it's because she was burning meals, is it because didn't like that she had an Audi belly button, and he, the man divorces his wife, and she goes and remarries, he is actually pushing her into what God will see as adultery because now she's going to consummate that union with another man while she was never unfaithful to her first husband. So it's protecting the woman by saying, don't, don't push her out the door for something so frivolous and cause her to go into an act of adultery. And that's what the Lord is saying here. All right? Look at uh, Matthew 5.32 again. It says this. This makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And did you hear the terminology here? The woman becomes a victim of adultery. She's not an adulteress. Do you understand? He's pushing her to be a victim. And not only does this affect her, but it also affects the man, the man who marries her, because he enters into an adulterous relationship. And the same idea is reiterated in verse 9b of Matthew 19, but listen carefully. Once the second marriage is consummated, the first union is severed. That's her situation. Did you hear me? That first union is severed and now moved on, and the new union is consummated. Bottom line, church, is that Jesus was rebuking them for not taking the marriage seriously, the covenant seriously, and basing it on these foolish traditions of men which allowed divorce for any ludicrous reason. And he's saying what happened is that traditions of men made the uh, marriage covenant almost meaningless. Meaningless. And it's not meaningless in God's eyes. It's holy and sacred, instituted by him. All righty? And please, let me read it once again. Once the divorce takes place, and either party marries again, there's two things we have to understand. Once that new marriage is consummated, in essence, that old union is severed, all right? But now in the new union, they should live under the guides of the consummation of their marriage as a covenant relationship, all right? You don't take, well, it's one and done and done and done. No, now you've entered in a second time. Live under that as God would have you. Oof. And listen, because the reasons that the first husband may have divorced his wife were frivolous, it tells us in the Word that he can't go back and marry her again. Because, especially after she was married again, if she comes back to her first husband, it's, it's, the Lord says it's an abomin- abomination that it's not to happen. You can't, it's not a toy. A person's not a toy. It's a covenant. So the Lord puts that in his word. Basically, it's a rebuke. All of this is a rebuke to the man for sending his wife away for foolish or frivolous reasons. You can't say this. You're having and not having your wife for convenience. There's no reason for divorce. And God's true impropriety in marriage, or again, if the spouse dies, that that is terminated. And to get a better understanding for us as Christians, I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Turn with me there, please. And we're going to start at verses 10 and 11. Listen, this is a tough portion of God's word, but it's God's word. Amen? And I'm here to teach you and educate you so that you can pass it on to those in your families, all righty, and to protect yourselves. 
Verse 10 and 11, to the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. Now we have to understand, Paul is writing this to the Corinthian church. To the church. He's writing to Christians. The Corinthian church had a lot of problems, but they were Christians nonetheless. This is who he's writing to. Therefore, we must look at these verses in context of this being a Christian church, a Christian group. And Paul is addressing them and us as Christians to understand, who understand the sanctity of the covenant of marriage and the fact that we must do all things to maintain that covenant. So he's writing to Christians and saying, this is the covenant you entered into. You know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Follow the principles of the word and follow those principles within your marriage to keep that covenant sanctified, to keep that covenant in union. The guidelines of Ephesians 5 must be our guidelines. Husbands, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. I've preached on it. My pastor's preached on it. That means we have a sacrificial love for our wives. Look what Jesus Christ did for the church. He came, he gave up heaven, came in a hum- as a humble baby in a manger, worked his hands as a carpenter slash mason, and then what? Led a three-and-a-half-year grueling ministry and went to the cross of Calvary, beaten, etc., etc. We know the story, but who did he do it for? His bride, the church, us, and we had to love our wives like that with a sacrificial love. And ladies, it says, come, submit to your husbands, come under their authority, and they'll do that if they know that we love them in this way. They'll willingly come under our authority because they know we have the best for them. But even if the guy's a knucklehead, ladies, you obey your husband unless he asks you to do something that goes against the word of God or if he asks you to stop. So if he says, I don't want to go to this wedding in California because of the destination waiting, don't break him. He's the husband. You can talk about it, but that's it. No, we're not going to a destination wedding in California. Just don't worry. I didn't use it as an example. All right. You'd like to? That place is going to fall off the face of the earth. Mm. All right. And if there's strife that seems to be irreconcilable, listen to me. It's okay to separate for a while and get counseling with the idea that there's going to be reconciliation and restoration. Not that it's going to end, but you may need to get out of the boxing ring for a while and then get counseling so you can come back together and apply those marriage principles that the Scripture gives us. All right, That's why he's talking to Christians here saying, no, you don't divorce. You know what it means in God's eyes. If there are problems, then separate for a while and work it out. Okay? All right. And the key is really found in Ephesians 5.21 when it says this, submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. So we work together, submitting one to another so that what? The marriage goes forth and people see that Christ-like union in us and it brings reverence to him. Amen? We submit one to the other. There's a loving submission between husband and wife. An agape that you go back and look, it's a give and take. We know that for married couples. Sometimes you give, sometimes you take. You work together, you work things out. Because this is an institution created by God. This is a covenant relationship, and we do it his way. It brings him glory and honor. Amen? Praise God. And, oh, and, and let, let me go on with this. If there's strife, listen, 
we talked about it. And please, if there is a transgression, and since we're talking about this portion of Scripture, God forbid, God forbid, that there is a stumbling. Everybody goes through a period of weakness, yes? If someone stumbles into a sin, even a sexual sin, and it is not a lasting, permanent, ongoing thing, should we not be like Christ and forgive and bring that spouse back in for restoration and reconciliation to repair the marriage, not just throw in a towel? I really believe what the Lord is saying here. If there is a pattern of behavior where someone's living in an adulterous relationship and they have no regard for the Lord or no regard for the marriage, yes, divorce, all right? But if any of us can stumble into a sin, and I'm not condoning it, but it can happen. Because please listen, how many times a day do we commit spiritual adultery against our Savior and he forgives, amen? So we are to have a forgiving spirit and we've seen I'm going on, okay? Because it was a one-time stumble. It was a one-time fall, not a pattern of behavior. If it's a pattern of behavior, then you've got to question whether they're really saved, if they can continue in such a behavior. Amen? And please listen carefully. There are circumstances in which one should not feel obligated to stay under the roof with another person. If there is physical, sexual abuse, or any other kind of severe abuse, nobody even though it's a marriage, should stay in that where either you or your children or your family are in danger. You get out. It's logical. You can seek reconciliation. You can seek restoration if the person will get help. But if they continue in that lifestyle, continue to be abusers, then you know what? You have to think that they're not really saved. Because through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can overcome any bent of sin in our life. Amen? And if you don't believe that, that you don't believe God is God. That there's, then you don't believe what we're saying, this power in the name of Jesus. Not that you rush right back in. You may need counsel. You may need supervision. But you try to work it out. But if that person will not turn and come, then you go your merry way. And I believe that uh, segues into the next couple of verses. Look at verse 12 and 13 of 1 Corinthians 7. To the rest I say this, not I but the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Again, barring circumstances like I just said. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Please listen. All right? And then look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through a believing husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. That means set apart. Now, family, this doesn't mean that if you are saved and you marry someone, that household, it's, they're bringing a godly influence to the family. And hopefully we'll have a godly influence where it brings that spouse to salvation. And I don't condone missionary dating or missionary marriage. We'll get to that. All right? But if they're in a household and say they're married and all of a sudden one spouse gets saved, they sanctify the house in that they bring a godly influence on the spouse and the children. All righty? All right, so it doesn't mean that just because the, husband, the woman comes to salvation that the husband's automatically saved and the children are saved. No, they've got to make a personal profession of faith. And listen, if the unsaved spouse can't bear up under that godly influence and they leave, let it be so. Look at verse 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. But please recognize, it's the unbeliever who leaves. It's not the believer who throws in the towel. 
if there's no kind of abuse, no kind of immorality going on, the believer looks to work out the marriage, even if they have to bear under some ugly stuff. Again, barring abuse or adultery or any of those kinds of things. So if the unbeliever wants to leave, they're free to go. And what happens is the believer is no longer bound. It can go and be remarried or get into another relationship. Amen? All right. So that, and once, uh, if that unbeliever goes and commits adultery or gets involved, again, the relationship is severed. All right. Now, I have down here as we close, this has been a challenge for me. It is a sensitive subject, and the only way we can approach it is through God's Word. Amen? And, I'm, uh, and again, ask my wife. It, I must be, what, praying about a month about this? And, and call, I called a couple of pastors and went through Scripture verses with them because we want to see this from God's perspective. So how can we sum up this morning? Well, let me give you some statements along with some practical application. First of all, we must understand marriage was and still is instituted by God. It's supposed to be between one man, one woman. Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, okay? One man, one woman. It's a covenant relationship. It is to be permanent, inseparable, because they become one flesh. It's a, a blood covenant. I'm not going to get into that, but it is. We are, we are to approach her has given us. Men, we have to love our wives as Christ loved the church. That means be tender, look at the fruits of the spirits, kind, gentle, compassionate, faithful, amen, love. And ladies, you ought to come under your husband's authority and listen because he wants the best for you, all right? And I would highly suggest that any man or woman, young man, young woman, that wants to enter into this covenant, get pre-covenant counseling to really understand what marriage is, to see if you are compatible, compatible with the person, that the little things that seem cutesy aren't going to irritate you five years down the line where you want to wring their neck, all right? And please listen carefully, especially the unmarried. Scripture teaches that we are to be equally yoked. We are to marry another Christian. We don't do missionary dating, hoping they'll come to salvation faith. Uncle Willie went through years, Right? unsaved wife, and the man was on fire for God and had a, stayed faithful to his wife but always carried a little burden that she was upset with him because he was a Christian and she wasn't. It will mar your walk with Christ, all right? And listen carefully. I have down this also. Even if they're equally yoked, and I've said this to my son Thomas, make sure they have the same zeal and fire that you do for the Lord. If God puts it on your heart to be a missionary, but the trouble... You've got to find someone that has that same zeal for Christ so that you fulfill that plan together. Amen? Praise God. And to the married, please apply the Ephesians 5 model and God's word to your marriages. Read. Read God's word and see what it tells us. And listen, we can do it. And why? Look what Ecclesiastes 4.12 tells us. A cord of three strands is not equally broken, easily broken. When we do it God's way, when we apply God's word to our marriages, when we rely on the Holy Spirit to love our wives, ladies, come under the authority of your husband, and we really apply God's word like anything else, it's going to work. It's going to work. He's not a liar. He doesn't set us up for failure. He sets us up for success, especially in a covenant relationship like marriage. Amen? So we put God's principles to work, and it works. And you know what? I'm going to say some things here. What examples we've had Joni, it's Joni, your, your grandparents, right, Alana? 
married for how many years? Joe and Addie, until the day Addie passed, I think it was, what, 60-something years married. Mike and Madeline, 59 years. Why? When you do it God's way, it works. 36 years, going on 37, and others in here. Year after year married, because when you apply God's principles to your marriage, he's going to make it work. But we have to submit one to another with that agape love and not get into a self-centered, poor me, I deserve my right of the church. And now the church submits to Christ. And I'll stand on the fact that when we do it God's way, we can endure all the challenges that come our way and that do and will occur within the marriage and family. But we have his word, we have his spirit, and we have his promises. Amen? Tough teaching. But those who are married, this is a covenant relationship that we've made with each other. It's not to be broken. And it can work if we do it God's way. To those who are remarried, you're in a new covenant relationship. Go forward in the principles of God's word and leave all the guilt and shame behind. Amen? Do you hear me? But go forward now. No one should leave here feeling guilty, ashamed, judged. No. We go forward in who we are in Christ now as new creations. But we could teach the next generation, which the idea of the biblical marriage has been decimated. But we are here to teach our children. We are here to teach Jordan the kids, the definition of marriage and what it means in God's eyes, the next generation. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that nothing can separate us from your love in this new covenant relationship, Lord Jesus, separable. We thank you, Lord, that you gave us the example in what you did for us on the cross and bringing us into covenant relationship with you. And Father, from the creation of man and woman, you have given us this wonderful covenant of marriage where the two become one flesh, Lord, inseparable. Distinct personalities, but brought together to fulfill what you have, a plan for their lives that will bring you glory and honor, that will use them to co-labor over your creation. Lord, thank you for giving one another that helpmate, that love, that we can share a Christ-like love, one for another here, here or married, or thanking, thank God for their spouse, for their husband, for their wife, for the relationship that we have, Lord. And Father, as we raise our children, let us teach them the beauty and sanctity of this wonderful covenant relationship that you have given that works so beautifully and wonderfully if we do it your way. And help us as marriage, Lord, to institute your principles, your words into our marriage that we would be the men and man of God that loves our wives as you love the church, Lord. And wives, you would love your husbands, my God, that you would just bless this union, bless the fruit of that union, Lord, that our children would come to salvation faith, Lord God. And we just thank you. We thank you this morning. And we give you all the glory, the honor, and the praise. And it's in Jesus' name we say, amen.